0: You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric here. Excited to be joined by a 2020 NLC Virginia fellow. Alan Chipman is here. We'll catch up with him, see what he thinks of his institute experience so far and also what he's working on out in the state of Virginia. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. All right, Alan, before we get going, I, do I have this right? You also have a podcast. I'm always excited to talk to fellow podcasters. What's yours actually about?
1: Sure. Uh, my podcast is called A Difference in Thought. It's dedicated to the uh, teachings of Dr. King um, beyond just kind of the well-known stuff. And just it's the mantra of it is that there can be no difference without subtraction. And so it it brings the words of civil rights leaders and Dr. King into modern day uh, times in life and just sees what uh, we need to do to make those words become a reality.
0: And are you doing that solo or are you bringing in guests?
1: I have guests sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll probably be teaching some of my NLC fellows on it uh, uh, <laughs> coming up soon too, so that'll be really... Uh,
0: yeah, it's the best way to build a, build a podcast empire. Start with your friends for sure. Um, you know, I was curious, what led you to NLC? Did someone you know do the program? How did you end up in the fellows' classes here?
1: Yeah, um, so I knew um, um Migist, who is one of the heads of the NLC Virginia one, and I actually went to college with my good friend Ben Stoles and a mm. very close friend of mine um, who does a lot of good work um, kind of making uh, local government more accessible and understandable. Uh, Jesse Perry um, recommended uh, that I do it, and so with those three people on board, and and, and uh, some of my local—I uh, uh, was about to say constituents—but uh, <laughs> a lot of my local friends that I organized with and community members have asked me to run for office, and so I thought that um, given. The network and the scope uh, and the history of NLC will be a good way to kind of get my skill set organized a little bit better in order to do what my community asks me to.
0: And what's been the biggest surprise about the experience so far? Uh,
1: The biggest surprise for me has been how many people really want me to run against the incumbent. Uh, (laughs) Okay. uh, But uh, I also have uh, just kind of been surprised at uh, how... um, archaic, I think, sometimes the local processes can still be. Um, There's a very interesting book by Gavin Newsom called Citizen Bill that talks about leveraging tech and information to make um, local government more accessible. So I've been reading through that and uh, really just seeing, you know, how different, uh, no pun on my podcast, but how different the process could uh, (laughs) truly be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've had a few of your folks on from your chapter so far, and I was curious what your take was on the fact that y'all rotate around the state, which I thought was very interesting. You're not necessarily setting up shop in one city for the six months. How has that impacted how everyone's bonded together or how does that impact just the experience o- overall?
1: I think it's been great because you really get to see, um, what's, what's, uh, the commonalities within the, um, Commonwealth of Virginia, but you also get to see how different, uh, organizing looks or how different, um, uh, leadership looks across that as well. And so I've, I've been enjoying uh, seeing parts of Virginia that I probably otherwise wouldn't uh, have encountered with and being able to see just um, is similarities of the organizing that we're doing. And uh, it's kind of encouraging. And it's also, I'm a super curious person. So it's also captivating as well to, to learn uh, different um, experiences.
0: And would you say it's a similar experience, you know, you think of California, you know, San Diego, LA, the Bay Area, but then there's a huge geographic swath of the state in the Central Valley that is so different for so many different reasons and that that also expresses itself politically, too. I'm sure the same is accurate in your state also. Like, how would you sort of want people to better understand the state as a whole?
1: Wow, the state as a whole. I mean, the uh... <laughs> When I uh, I actually grew up in Baltimore, but when I came to uh, Virginia, I, what I thought was really cool is that you have completely different scenes. Sometimes the state feels like four different states, right? You got the 757 and uh, Norfolk, and then you have like kind of more rural towards West Virginia. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, Richmond, which is uh, kind of more like a city. And then you, you have it's so many different scenes uh, in a very tight uh, place. And even. Uh, though we've started to trend the blue more recently, uh, a lot of different ideologies um, across those uh, spectrums as well.
0: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about your your profession. You know, there's a phrase in your bio on the NLC website, which I, I don't think I've ever seen these words ordered this way. A faith-rooted organizer. Uh, can you share folks maybe how that phrase came to be and what it actually means?
1: Sure, absolutely. So, um, Faith-Rooted Organizing, um, there's actually a really great book called Faith-Rooted Organizing, and it differentiates itself between faith-based and faith-rooted. And it's something that I appreciate. I know that uh, different faiths may have different understandings about the afterlife, but they have a lot of commonalities around how we are to represent our faiths in this life. And so it's basing, it's allowing people to, to show up in the traditions of their faith, but also calling them to challenge how societal values might have uh uh formed how they view their faith more so than vice versa and so my belief is that allowing people to show up fully as they are um and bring what they contribute um instead of feeling like well i don't know if you believe me so i won't really say something specific uh but then also understanding that especially in the history of virginia as for me my faith is mm-hmm. a Christian so understanding that slaveholders quoted the Bible and so did Nat Turner, right? Like, so
0: <laughs> There's right. this
1: uh, contrast there. So providing a place for people to work out those differences, being able to weed out when more societal, um, some of the harmful societal views have uh, corrupted that and how do we hold each other accountable to um, really live out uh, the call to justice within those faiths?
0: You know, that phrase reminded me of, of something from my own life at I- uh, one of the the two-year periods in my, my earlier 20s I don't feel like it's talked about it too much when I'm talking to my friends or even professionally was I did two years in divinity school oh, wow. and it was from 03 to 05 so it overlapped with the 04 election and one of the classes I took was essentially like a religion and politics religion public oh, life yeah. and it was led by a, a progressive uh, evangelical um, preacher named Jim Wallace I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with him at all yeah okay I And so, you know, it was so interesting because he would teach on Mondays and then basically do the cable news circuit amongst other speaking engagements because it was prime election season and sort of then come back and talk about what he was hearing and and those kind of things. And I don't know if you remember or have read about that, that period of time, but, you know, one of the key constituencies, if you will, was this idea of values voters and how, you know, Bush was somehow able to tap into these values voters and that Dems and progressives have have not found that language to be accessible, and what's of course super confusing is, uh, especially with the evangelical community then, and we're definitely seeing it making our head spins now. Is is kind of like what you're saying, how the the faith tradition is being used to justify some really gnarly stuff, um, and so what can progressives do to you know, lift up their own uh, ways that they feel the Bible or another faith tradition's sacred text is being. Progressive. I guess I say all that to ask: Do you feel like there are certain messages that you found, or certain uh, topics, uh, when you are rooting or organizing in faith, that that kind of really unlock people's comfort with being able to see, uh, you know, very topical policy issues in a slightly different way?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think uh, what happens, uh, and especially within my faith tradition, one of the most important essays I think I've read. Uh, in the past five years, has been W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of White Folk. Now, a lot of people know about the souls of black folk, but he also talks about <laughs> the souls of white folk that talks about whiteness is almost like a religion and that it has a certain mm-hmm. worldview that it gives you, and that very much informs your faith. And so, when people understand that they're combating against nationalism, and but they feel like it is their faith, it's hard to separate those. Um, there's a really interesting book by a Native American called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys named uh, Richard Twist. May he rest in peace, but he talks about something called counteractive syncretism, where pretty much uh, in an effort to, for example, you might start off as a value voter. I want more people uh, politically to lean with what my faith might be, uh, that there comes a point where you reach a point where you compromise some of your core faith ones just for political power, which is, but you can study that in Rome and different priests and what happened when caesar became pontifex maximus and that that blurring of the lines between empire power and um faith that was typically birthed out of marginalized people Uh, so my main goal is helping people to understand that this call to justice isn't some left-wing you know social justice type of thing but if you actually read your scriptures your sacred scriptures outside of your current societal lens and understand the original context back then that a lot of that call to justice is actually within the faith that you have dedicated yourself to. And that's where it kind of people kind of hits the light and says, oh, this is actually what I've said I've dedicated my life to. And they're able to take a new approach of it outside of just the nationalistic, you know, um, remix, we'll say, that uh, mm. America has done on a lot of religions.
0: No, that makes sense. You know, it also makes you think of one of the things Professor Wallace did in the classes early on. So he, he had two Bibles. And he held them up. And one of the Bibles, he had with scissors, cut out all references to homosexuality and abortion. And the Bible looked yeah. essentially the same. You couldn't really even tell he had cut anything. Yeah. And then the other Bible was he had cut out all the scripture related to um economic justice and uh wealth inequality, like all the things that are very top of mind politically today, but you know, are so rooted uh in the Christian faith, but are for some reason not as talked about as frequently. And the Bible was hardly recognizable. He could barely hold it up, right? There's barely any pages left in yeah. certain sections, which I always thought was such a powerful visual and, and maybe a way to reorient some people's people's conversations about it. Let me ask, is there anyone maybe in the last five to 10 years politically that you feel like has, has really um, done a done an excellent job of, of weaving these things that you're saying together to make a really compelling, coherent political message, either on the national stage or on a local stage?
1: Huh. So that is very interesting. So there's one guy who, you know, probably will never be an earshot of becoming public, but um, there's actually a um, Native American named Mark Charles who is running right now and is mm-hmm. really challenging. And he has a really great book called Unsettling Truth that talks about the doctrine of discovery and all of these other ways that America has, has manipulated religion for economic purposes. And so he's, he has a campaign out that's pretty interesting right now. Um, but I, um, I don't know, I I think on the, on the, on the left, more so on, well, I don't know anybody who's really, uh, nailing it well, but I think it's more so, um, once you understand the call to justice, who is really focusing and has an experience of really pinpointing on the marginalized. And I, I really liked Julian Castro's campaign. I know he's not Mm -hmm. in right now, but if you, especially his time, uh, during the uh, Obama administration over HUD. And he really was challenging localities, not just in the South where people know about segregation, but really in the North as well, even New York City challenging. When was the last time that you guys really had a city plan to really desegregate and undo some of the, the, the uh, damage that redlining did? And you hadn't seen anyone that really uh, intentionally progressive on desegregation since maybe, I don't know, george romney and the nixon administration i know that's mm. like Mitt romney's dad but like um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh i think you kind of it's it's kind of a weird place where you kind of have bits and pieces of this here and that there so you you kind of can feel politically homeless a little bit but i think it's really going where you are rooted and being brave enough and having that prophetic voice like um Dr. King, Reverend William Barber was a lot doing a lot of that work today, and really being able to speak and then move each side towards the values that you, your your faith is rooted in.
0: We'll take a short break and then come back with Alan and talk about a few more topics. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be right back. Now, Alan, one of the interesting things about you being a fellow this year in an election year. Um, it reminds me i I was leading the la institute in 2016 and while we didn't know what uh, dramatic turn of awful events was going to come to us later that year there was still a lot of interesting buzz and conversation about the primary during the january through june experience in 2016 is that happening for y'all as well do you feel like uh, folks are mirroring kind of what we're seeing nationally with who's supporting whom or kind of like what topics folks are considering about electability and all those conversations what are you what are you seeing so far
1: yeah, um, I think there's a, a bit of a spectrum within the class, but I mean, it's like 18 candidates right now. So, I mean, <laughs> it's hard. <not> to get <laughs> that. Uh, but I, I think I think it's just a reflection. And I think, you know, we had a, a, a part of the program is determining what you, what is progressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you de- define progressive? And for me, it's, you know, progressing, progressing. You can judge a progression by, do we have the same starting point, right? Do we have enough knowledge of history? So, for example, when Andrew Yang comes about a, 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 a UBI, universal basic income, or, well, you know, that's what Dr. King was talking about in 67 and 68. And so are we really, that may seem progressive unless you know your history and know that, well, that's what's been going on very far back. So, um through a through a lack of knowledge of history can moderation become extreme because we don't just don't know how much people in the past have asked for way much more and so but I think the class is um uh uh very uh progressive it varies and i and I think it's more so how does progressive values apply to our uh, the way that we organize one of the conversations that i has, that has opened my eyes so much is um my friend Matthew and really just talking about uh, his advocacy that he does for um, um, more accessibility to those uh, who um, are, are differently abled mm-hmm. and talking about here in Virginia saying like you know there has been a dedicated position in the uh, in, a, in a cabinet for uh, people that are differently abled since I think Tim Kane was governor which is at least, a decade ago right so like how can we be you know we've turned blue and have all these progressive values when there's an entire <laughs> group of virginians sure. that hasn't even represented that used to be represented but hasn't anymore so that's about like a history of progression right like we may think we're progressive but we're actually have regressed because we used to be more progressive back when Tim <laughs> Chain was gonna. so i think like having that starting base and having people being in a group room with people that can even challenge where you may think you're progressive and can give you a, a realm of history from a community that they're very much a part of. And, and, you know, you'll come to the table thinking you're progressive and finding out that actually we're kind of moving backwards. So I need to be more engaged, add my voice and my organizing efforts to um, Brother Matthew's work so that we can actually get back to what, to the ground we lost. And then we can have a conversation about what does progression look like? So I think... Um, being in a class in a group full of people that can challenge my assumptions on what does progression really look like and then put me in a, and give me the skill sets to actually build something so that the next time I'm at the general assembly, I'm not just talking about my bill, but I'm also finding more creative ways for um, uh, Matthew to do his work as well. And that's just like one example within the class.
0: Yeah. And then uh, last thing, you know, nominations are now open for next year's fellows class, kind of hard to believe. What's the the short pitch you would make to someone to consider doing the program next year?
1: Right, uh, I, I'm a great, one of the great things that I love about civil rights history, I, I have about like probably 20 civil rights books. My, my wife always tells me to stop bringing them home. But what's really great is that the movement they created was based on relationship and friendship. Everybody writes the forward to so other people's books, everybody's in each other's books. And you see that beyond an ideology, it really was a relationship, a set strategy, um, and uh, building resources. And that those three things changed our nation and even the world. And so uh, if you really want to implement change and even increase your effectiveness and expand your reach, NLC is really building that table, providing that strategy, and pulling those resources to equip people to do that at a higher level.
0: Well said. Listen, thanks for coming on. And I'm excited to hear your experience has been a strong one so far. Definitely keep it up as you get through the rest of the program through through June. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. Make sure to check out all past episodes. There's a lot, almost 170 or so are up. Get those in all the places. You get your podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, Stitcher, they're all there, short and sweet. Download them today and subscribe. And until next time, we'll catch you soon.